So today we begin a new sermon series um, titled, You Have Heard It Said, and we're going to jump right into it. You may be asking why this name? Well, the expression, this is an expression that is used by Jesus 25 times in the New Testament. Um, so if Jesus chose to use this expression, then we should probably consider why he uses it. And, and we should see what he says and what the importance behind it is. Every time he used this expression, it was before leading into an explanation of something. And you may be wondering, what, what was that something? Well, I'm so glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you. Every time he chooses to use this expression in Scripture, he does so to reaffirm or explain or correct a theory or a belief that was already generally accepted for, by the people. It's known as conventional wisdom, okay? For instance, you, the, the, sermon, the Sermon on the Mountain is known for this, okay? But without diving too deep into it, Jesus would usually use this concept that was already accepted to reaffirm or correct some sort of practice in one way or another. He would say, you have heard it said, and in agreement to that I say, he would say, you have heard it said, or in addition to that I say, you have heard it say, or in contrast to that I say, and he would constantly use this to reaffirm something that already existed. Why is this so important? Because people, even back in the Bible days, had this tendency to take things out of context and use the laws and rules to their advantage and benefit. Something that never happens today. You ever met somebody that does that? It's like, don't, don't ask me. I don't, don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Kids are known for doing this. Let's simplify it. My five-year-old son understands that now he could get something from mommy where sometimes he can't get it from daddy or sometimes he gets something from daddy that he can't get from mommy, so he plays us. He plays us. He, I'm in the other room. Rosie's in the other room. He goes over there, gets a no, and then he comes back. Dad, can I do this? Of course. And they just, he just plays this thing. And, I, you know, Rosie's like, I told him no. And I'm like, I didn't know. So I, I rolled out this new rule this past week. Um, I told him, buddy, you need two yeses and one no. That's my rule for Sebastian. And he, he didn't, I don't think he understood, but we're going to kind of keep reaffirming that. All right. But I said, Bash, you need two yeses and one no. So you only need a no from one of us. So you don't need to go and reaffirm with anybody else. If I say no, it's no. Rosie says no, it's no. I said, oh, you need two yeses. If I say yes, go and check with your mom to make sure I'm not missing something and get a second yes. I don't think he got it, but I'm, I'm heading somewhere here, okay? <clears throat> We're not necessarily going to go into everything that Jesus said right after he made this statement, but we, we will be diving into some statements made by Je Jesus that shifted and corrected the culture for the benefit of the kingdom of God. Because the words of Jesus, we understand to be profound and lasting throughout all eternity. The Bible tells us that this word will never pass. It will stand. It will accomplish what is set forth to accomplish in one statement. We can unpack a wealth of truth from Jesus. John 1.1 says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. This truth cannot be quenched, okay? 
Jesus is the word. Jesus is God. His words are powerful, powerful enough to drive away darkness and to heal the sick and set the captive free. So I stand on that base today as I come before you to explain that this same level of redundancy that we may think Jesus was using here, he brought forth a balance and a stability to the radical understanding of what the law was at the time. He fought against the misrepresentation of those things that were originally created for good. Things that people stood on for decades. And sadly, this same level of clarity needs to be emphasized today in our lives. The mislabeling and the misrepresentation of the original, which was once good, has been completely demonized in our world today, causing folks to question things that they have followed for years. Things that they have believed to be true for decades. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus standing against the Pharisees' view of the law and saying things like, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he's constantly changing this narrative of, of, of how people took the law and displayed it. He said, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? You see those concepts? The law is fulfilled, he said, in one word. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. He constantly drove this narrative, prioritizing something that was so unique and powerful. And my hope is that through this series, we would find clarity and confidence in the simplicity of God's word by standing in one simple formula. Jesus plus nothing equals the gospel. That's it. That's it. Let's just simplify it for a second. Jesus plus nothing equals the gospel. That is the, our formula for success. That is how our church will move forward. You know, we're going to be reading at a, at a chapter 8 of the book of John and in, 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 most, in, in, in most Bibles, you'll notice that, the, that from John chapter 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11, that whole entire scripture, it, it, it's, it's set off in a bracket or in its foot. It doesn't have a footnote because most New Testament scholars don't think that this scripture made the gospel of John when it was first written. It was added centuries later. Actually, my Bible says not added originally with the script on the top, on parentheses, right before I read the, the script. This story is only found in the Gospel of John, which focuses primarily on the life of Jesus through the lens of love and lordship. But the most remarkable point of this entire story is that Jesus exalts himself above the law. Okay? Changes its appointed punishment and reestablishes righteousness on the foundation of grace. I don't doubt that this is why this story was saved or, or added or, or was included from the beginning because it is an amazing story. Let's go to the chapter. Let's go to the, 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 the scripture. We're going to be reading John chapter 8, verse 1 to verse 11. We're going to read the whole thing right now. <clears throat> Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. 
As he was speaking, the teacher of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They, they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, and he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Amazing story. If you've been around the church circle for a while, you have heard this story. You, 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 you've heard people talk about this. What, what had happened here is that the, the Feast of the Tabernacles had just taken place. So a lot of people had come to Jerusalem to, to kind of be a part of that. So when it says that the, there were still a lot of visitors gather around, so when Jesus comes out and he begins to teach, they were all so amazed by his teachings that they instantly all gather around him. One thing we don't see is we don't ever see the crowd going away. The Bible says that once everyone left, Jesus remained in the middle, surrounded by the crowd still, okay? <clears throat> so when, when the Bible says everyone left, only the accusers left in that position. But the Pharisees find a way to take aim at Jesus, confronting the law, you know, finding a gap, trying to figure out a way, how can we trap this guy that keeps just kind of having all sorts of results in our, in our towns? Even when they use things like, like the law, you, you can learn a lesson today that sometimes not taking everything at face value and digging a little deeper could end up giving us the clarity on a situation we need. What we learned from this is that they were clever in the way they, they went about presenting the law and how they confronted Jesus. They tried ways to kind of get people confused. In this case, Jesus. Simply because someone is able to articulate something well, it does not make it true, friends. Amen? I, I, I learned, I, I live my life by this one rule of thumb that nothing good can come from something evil. There's no good experience learned from them, okay? For example, we see here that the law said, if a man is found lying with another, with another woman, both of them shall die, okay? Look at Deuteronomy 22, 22. It says, if a man is discovered committing adultery, what does it say next? Both. He and the woman must die. Take me to the next one in Leviticus, okay? If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, how many? Both. Something tricky here. In this story that we just read, we see a woman, a woman being presented by herself. All right? So there's an application of the law being done wrong if that's essentially what they were willing to stand on. We see something fishy here. There is no such thing as adultery where there's only one person guilty in the matter. But there she is standing by herself being accused, about to be stoned. Leaving us with this one question, how committed were these scribes and Pharisees to the law itself? Or is the law was just a pretext 
for their preconceptions of Jesus and what they were trying to prove. You know, I, I, I told you a few weeks ago that, you know, sometimes it's not, the, it's not our theology that's off, it's our hearts. Our problem sometimes is not our theology and what we know of Scripture is our hearts and how we feel and how we're addressing situations. In verse 6, it gives us the picture of why they were doing what they were doing. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They were using her and using the law to get rid of their troublemaker. Their internal intentions were way off, and you can smell this stuff from a mile away. I, I've been in a position multiple times that people try to speak into my life, and you can sense that it isn't genuine. That people try to look for my best benefit or try to say that they're looking out for me by giving me counsel or whatever the case may be, and sometimes it is not the best thing ever. Have you ever been in a position like that? Because if your internal intentions and external actions aren't lining up, you can't start hiding behind phrases like, nobody's perfect. Only God can judge me. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. It takes, it takes for us to repent of our pride, cry out for grace and mercy and be transformed and allow yourself to be discipled so your internal and external both can glorify God. You ever, I mean, it, it, it is just so hypocritical today. You know, the, the God we serve is a just God and he will have his justice. However, that is not up to us to determine how to flag fairness. You following me? We should stop, hey, if you're a believer in Christ, stop pursuing fairness. Stop. Stop. It's not coming. It ain't going to happen. God is just, but he's not always fair. Don't stone me. He's not fair to our judgment. The way we see it, it's not fair. He's just, but he's not always fair. Friends, if you want fairness, we will all be in a lot of trouble. It's funny because we, we want fairness for others, but we constantly abuse <laughs> fairness with God for our own lives. He, he has, uh, Jesus has three responses today that he uses on the text. He actually responds only three times. The first one, he says, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Comes off the bat strong. I mean, we're in trouble now. It just got real. But the first one who has no sin throw the first stone. The, the guy just literally stands up. All right, let the first one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he doesn't even wait for a response. Stoops right back down and starts writing on the sand. You know? Now, of course, that won't work as a basis for social justice. No criminal is brought to justice by only assuming that the judge is sinless. Instead, Jesus is taking this opportunity to reestablish righteousness. He is doing it on the foundation of grace. 
So far in the text, there's been zero grace, zero humility, zero compassion, which means there is zero law keeping. Jesus, if, if, if Jesus would have said, don't stone her, he would have broken the law, friends. If Jesus would have said, stop, don't stone her, he would have broken the law. You see how clever and creative he is? Instead, he says, hey, if you have no sin, stone her. Okay? And they are left, they don't even know what to say. You know, some of us are so quickly sometimes to be judgmental of others. It's like we're desperate. We want things to change instantly. We have zero patience for other people. God has taken, I've said it multiple times, God has taken me through a journey that sometimes has been unique to me. I can't expect God to replicate that same process and journey on other people. We anticipate change in people's lives when God is not demanding it. We cannot expect unbelievers to act like believers until they are believers. What is the worst part about a sinner? Their sin? Nope their lack of salvation, their need of Jesus. You follow me? You know, we get, we get a feisty fish on the line, right? We give them some slack so we don't lose them. Okay? You get it. <laughs> I don't, I'm not a very good fisherman, so I, I don't know. Probably shouldn't use that line. You know, I, I think that when it comes to other people, a, a good way to, 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 to ask ourselves and, and, and a good way to check our character and our emotions is asking ourselves this question, and I threw it up on the screen. Are we trying to prove a point or are we trying to make a difference when it comes with, with dealing with other people? Are you trying to prove a point or are you trying to make a difference for the good, for the kingdom? Are you really finding ways to try to make a difference or are you just trying to prove a point so you can walk away from the conversation and say, I won? I mean, I, I, listen, this question right here has saved my marriage. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, glory be to God. <clears throat> we have to find ways to try to never judge by what we see. Remember that the same grace that covers up an open struggle is the same grace that covers up your secret one. Okay? However, we're not going to use the words of Jesus here to justify the tolerance of sin in the church, okay? Because if we did, we would also be contradicting what the Bible says in regards to that. You see the balance we're creating here? You know, there's a huge difference between those who sin outside of God and those who do within the body of God. God's word teaches that open, unashamed sins committed by those in the church must not be tolerated. In fact, it calls it to be confronted and exposed. And you're like, oh, man, I'm getting ready to get out of here. Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Now I'm going to have, so watch yourselves. If anyone, if any, if another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive the next one. Ephesians 5, 10 to 11. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. Next one. 
2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word of God, be prepared whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. The next one, Titus 1.13, this is true. So reprimand them sternly to make them strong in their faith. The next one, Titus 2.15, you must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them you have the authority to correct them when, they, when necessary, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. Is there another one? Yeah, the next one, Revelations 3.19. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. I expect it to turn around in this room to be empty. All verses directed towards those who are believers in Christ and make a part of this body. So if you're ever sitting here and you find yourself feeling attacked or like Moises is being too, wrong, too, too, too rough with me, it's because I am and it's because you belong. And it's because you belong. Because you are part of this body. Because it is our responsibility to make each other better. Jesus forced them to expose their own misuse of the law, and they walked away one at a time, and it had nothing to do with experience. In fact, the Bible makes it note to say that the older ones were the first ones to leave, a representation of knowledge and understanding, a seasoned Christian, and they were the first one who walked away. Again, the point is not that the judge or the executioner must be sinless. The point is that righteousness and justice should be founded on a gracious spirit. If not, what we get is the heartless and hypocrisy of fairism. Friends, that's, that's the point throughout the entire Gospels, okay? Not just here. The second thing he says is, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? There is a magical application here because in, earlier in verse 2, he says that early in the morning, this was taking place, okay? Then he goes on to say later on in the verses later, I think it's verse 12, where he opens up the verse by saying, I am the light of the world. Listen to this. This, this conflict starts with darkness. Starts early in the morning. It is understood that there was a point that it took some time frame where the sun was coming out. Jesus is standing there. This whole event takes place. And when the morning sun is beaming down and there's no one else standing there, Jesus said in verse 12, I am the light of the world. The darkness is gone. Where are your accusers? I am standing here and I am all that you need. We take what others say in consideration too much. I see people that have the light of the world inside their lives, and all it takes is for someone else to say something to them, and that's it. You lose them. They forget that they're Christians in the first place. Their reactions. Someone says a negative comment about you, and it ruins your day. It is pretty sad to watch, you know? I'm on the other spectrum. I tend to be a very optimistic guy, you know? I'm always like, yeah, everything's good, everything's good, you know? And I'm, I'm just that guy, you know? 
But I learned that the, the, the two biggest offenses that some of us will have in our life actually come from two surprising places. What people never say to you and what you hear people say to others that you wish they were saying to you. What Jesus is presenting us with here is that it's this picture of what it would look like, whether we're, we're standing there or not. It, it, it should be, our idea should be that what we have today is better than anything that we have had before, that no darkness could prevail against what we got going on when somebody comes at us and attacks us, my fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. You're not my problem. Jesus lives within me. And I, I, I could, I, I'm, I'm, I, we already won. You're like, Moises, that's so, so much easier said than done. When someone is insulting you, it's not that easy to do. I get that. But that's what we're being called to do. Remember, if someone or something, if someone can say something to you that inspires you to act out of character, and someone has that level of control over your life, guess what? They're winning. All right? They're winning. If all it takes is for someone to walk by you and say the wrong thing, and you say, that was it. I'm done now. They're winning. They control your character. They have control over your life. We need to turn that control over to God, to Jesus, who knows what to do with that. The last thing that he says to them is go and sin no more. When, when, when they're all gone, Jesus ends up the, the story by saying to the woman, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. It's like uh, similar to, the, to when he heals the lame man on chapter 5 in verses before, what he says, now you are well, stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you. I like, I like the story of the lame man in chapter 5 because the only details that it gives us of that story is that he had been sick for 38 years. But somehow, Jesus squeezes in there, now that you are well, stop sinning, okay? Or something else would happen to you. And you're like, when, when did the lame man was sinning? But it's the reality that all of us in this room face. We're all sinners, friends. Left to our own, we will pick sin every time. In the position of Adam and Eve, we will have probably picked sin. That's a harsh reality to deal with, but it is the truth. Jesus offers this woman the opportunity for salvation, a way out of a sinful life. He doesn't say, neither do I condemn you, so it doesn't matter if you commit adultery again. No, I'm reestablishing righteousness in your life, so don't commit adultery anymore. Not mainly because you fear being stoned, but because you have met God and have been rescued by his grace. We don't serve God because we fear hell. We serve God because he has unconditionally rescued us from it. This story may not have belonged in the Gospel of John. In fact, it, some people say it never existed, but the point of the story is unshakably true. It, it is a representation of the pervasive message of the New Testament. And Jesus exalted himself above the law, and he reestablished righteousness on the basis of an experience of grace. We are not saved by working hard, but we are saved to work hard. You follow me? 
Guys, the reality is this. God, God hates no one, but he does hate sin. And there's a reason why he plugs this into our scripture today. We're going and sinning no more was important. We're making sure that that person knew. And pursuing holiness without a profound experience of grace in our own lives produces hypocrisy and doctrinal cruelty. Jesus came into this world to provide grace through his cross and, and establish holiness, righteousness, and justice on the foundation of our experience of his grace. So come to him for grace and set your face to sin no more. It's like Romans 5, 8 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. See, Moises, God loves me who, the way that I am. You know, there's been, it's like, it's like there's your, your relationship status changed, okay? Using social media terms here, right? I mean, I, when, I, when I first dated Rosie, I used to complain about the bill being too expensive, and she hated it, because the bill will come and I will go, man, that's expensive. Can you believe that? It's like, just shut up and pay for it, you know? It would, it would annoy her so much. You remember that? She used to tell me all the time, why do you always have to do that? Well, listen, back then we were just dating. My relationship status hadn't changed. Now, now, I'm married to her. When we, start, when we got engaged, when we started dating, and we were serious about our relationship, some of those things had to change. You know? Our relationship status with God is changing. And change is coming. It's not only coming from God, it's expected from God. If you look to have a better relationship with God and still remain being the same exact person that you are today, man, it's not going to happen. Numerous things have had to change in my life throughout my journey with God and are still changing till today. Friends, I, I'm a person that I sometimes, I'm not a huge, like, deconstruct your faith or none of that. I'm, I'm not with all that. But sometimes I just reset all my habits. I literally put in practice, if this is what I do, I'm a very, you know, consistent person in the things that I do on a daily basis. But if it comes down to the point where every year I just have to hit a reset button in my life with what I do on a daily basis, just to reset my habits and see, God, how can I please you even more in the way that I live my life? Let me do it. So because change is not only coming, it's required. He is expecting this of his people that he has a relationship with. As much as God loves you the way you are, he loves you so much that he refuses to leave you how he found you. And some of us are a little bit more grateful for that than others. But I thank God that every day he works in my life to change me. that it is not left up to my wants and desires, that in my newfound relationship with Jesus, when he says, go and sin no more, I follow through and try my best 
to accomplish that in my life. If it costs me, hey, listen, I play video games for 30 minutes. I'm going to try to play video games for 15 minutes. Let's see if that works different. I looked at the TV for too long and binge watched too many shows. Maybe I need to reset that habit. There are things in our lives that are not only going to come through change, they're going to be expected to be changed because they're going to make you better as an individual. I know I use something so silly and simple as the example of Rosie not liking me complaining about the bill, but guys, your relationship status as you go deeper in relationship with God has changed. And the go and sin no more is not just this thing. It's an expectation. It's a requirement. Yes, God, God saved you while you were still yet a sinner. But there should be evidence in your life of a continual growth in God that may have some setbacks here and there. But God is looking to transform you. Change is coming. Not only is it coming, it's expected. You have to deal with that. You have to deal with that. As you sit here today, all I ask is that you would reflect that as your relationship grows with God, some things will change. Not the same things that change with me. Not the same things that he took from me, he'll take from you. But there is a grooming process that God is working in your life where he needs to turn you into the human being he has called you to be. Friends, that requires change. If you're sitting here today and you're stuck in a habit because this is how you are, this is how you are is not where God is going to end up leading you to. He may have a completely different picture of who you need to be, and that will require change. In fact, that will expect change. Don't get settled. Allow God to change your life. Amen? Bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Jesus. I pray that you would convict our lives. God, this, this room is full of people, Lord, that, that just love you. And, and, and I believe, God, that what you have in store is greater than we could even imagine, God. So I pray, Lord, this morning that you would, you would use us, that you would bring light to those areas of our lives that need change, that go and sin no more is an expectation that you have for, from all of us, God that whatever bad habits or things that we're a part of that need to go, Lord, that, that, that you would allow us to kind of get over that hump and expose those things in our lives so that we can move forward in relationship with you, God. We are in a deep relationship with you that requires this level of attention, God, and we don't want to take that from, for granted, God. So I pray that the conviction of your spirit will be all over this room. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would touch every single heart here. You're not condemning anyone. You're preparing us, God. We are so thankful that you meet us in this place right where we're at. And you're willing to work with us as we change and we, we get better and as we improve in this call. Thank you, God. I pray that the conviction in this room will be heavier than ever. Not for our own glory, Lord, but for the sake of your kingdom. 
for what you're doing here, for what you're doing in the lives of the people here, God. I pray that if there's any difficulties with any bondage in the room, Lord, that by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus, I cast it out and believe, God, that you will make us whole, that you would make us new, that change will be given and expected, God, and we will embrace it as your, as your children. Help us, God, to be the beacon of hope that you have called us to be as we give our lives to you this morning. God, thank you so much for being so good and doing what you're doing. We pray this in your name. Amen.